Well, today we have come to celebrate what's on our calendar is called Palm Sunday. Today we gather to remember, to acknowledge, to recognize the start of the final week of the life of Christ. What's commonly called the Passion of Christ. Passion is from a Latin word which means suffering or enduring. The Passion of Christ is the final week in the life of Jesus, covering his entrance to Jerusalem, Palm Sunday, his crucifixion on Mount Calvary, Friday, and ending with his triumphal resurrection on Sunday morning. Well, on this Palm Sunday, we commemorate the beginning of the Passion of Jesus as he entered Jerusalem riding on a donkey. It was an amazing scene. The crowd swelled as the peoples gathered along the street. They laid down their cloaks on the road. They, they covered the road with their palm tree branches and spread them out for Jesus as a sign of kingship, as a sign of royalty. It's kind of like our tradition of rolling out a red carpet for dignitaries. But obviously, so much more than that. The crowds of people cheered and they shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The people were proclaiming over and over again, cheering and shouting with joy. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the one who has come to deliver them. The whole city starts to take notice. Suddenly, all of Jerusalem starts to buzz with the excitement. The news spreads faster than a wildfire. Something amazing is happening, and the crowds swell even bigger. Matthew 21.10 says that when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? Now, of course, the people of the city knew who Jesus was. The crowd knew it was Jesus on the donkey. Jesus was the most popular and well-known person of his day. You see, the question isn't, who is this? Meaning, they didn't know who the person was on the donkey. They, they didn't know who the person's name was. But rather, the question is, who is this? Meaning, by what authority, by what right, by what justification is the crowd responding to Jesus in this way? The crowd is cheering and their voices, they're proclaiming that Jesus is Messiah. Is Jesus the one? Who is this? Is Jesus to be so acclaimed? Is Jesus, this Jesus we know, actually the Messiah? Who is he? On this Palm Sunday, on this very day, that is still the very same question that is being asked. Now, almost always, if not always, when we talk about Jesus to our friends, to our neighbors, to a family or to co-workers, even strangers, people know who we're talking about. They know Jesus. Mention Jesus and people know that we're talking about a Jewish man who lived in the first century. They probably know a story or two. Most often, at least they'll know about Christmas and the birth of Christ. And they'll know about Easter the resurrection of Christ. You know, but just like that crowd on that very first Palm Sunday, people know who he is, but yet the question remains, who is he? Our friends and our neighbors, they know who he is, 
But the question of his true identity still remains. By what authority, by what right, by what justification is Jesus so revered and worshipped? Who is he? Is this Jesus that we know, this Jesus of Christmas? Is this guy the actual Messiah? Who is he? Maybe today you're wondering that exact same question. Sure, we know all about him. We know the stories. But do we know who he actually is? Today in our study of 1 John, the Apostle John concludes the major theme of his letter by taking us into a courtroom where the identity of Jesus is on trial. So please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, starting at verse 6. It says, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For these three are that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. Father, we thank you so much on this morning, at this time, for your word, for these words. And we pray, Spirit, that you would illumine these words in our lives, empower them, and challenge us and convict us, teach us, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, today I want to present these verses to you as if we're in a courtroom. The first is the charge. As John concludes his letter, he now concludes this major theme of his letter about the true identity of Jesus and the person and work of Jesus, how that gives us assurance of our salvation. These verses actually start off with the events calling the witnesses. Because he's already exposed the charges against Jesus throughout his letter. If you look back in 1 John chapter 2 and 1 John chapter 4, which we've looked at before about the false teachers' claims on who Jesus was. These false teachers were acknowledging that Jesus is a special person. And yet, at the same time, they were denying that he was the Christ. That means that they were denying that Jesus was the Messiah, that he was the one who would bring salvation to mankind. They were also denying that Jesus was the Son of God. They were denying that Jesus was divine, that he was deity. They denied that Jesus was God. At the heart of these understandings about Jesus is an attempt to distinguish between Jesus and the Christ. To distinguish between the human Jesus and the Christ. One of the false teachers in John's day is named Serenthus. That's exactly what he did. 
he mixed Greek philosophy and myths with Jesus. And he said that the Christ spirit came to Jesus at his baptism and left him prior to the crucifixion. Oh, Jesus taught some great and wonderful things, he would say. But he wasn't really God. You see, if Jesus is just a man, he loses all authority. His teachings and life become no more important than any other man. If he's just a man, he can just be dismissed. If Jesus is just a man, we don't have to agree with what he taught. We can just reject it. What is true then, taught in the very first century, is true today for us. We have these same misunderstandings of Jesus today. Oh, Jesus is a great religious figure. He's an awesome example to follow. He's a great moral philosopher, people say. But he wasn't the one and only Savior of the world. No, no, no. There are many, multiple, hundreds of ways. All roads lead to heaven. Oh, Jesus was divine, just like we're divine. He tapped into his eternal spirit better than most. He's not really God. He's just God-like, showing us how to be God-like. Well, sure, there was this historical man named Jesus, but he really was a failed spiritual leader. He was trying to teach this message of love, but instead they killed him. He was way ahead of his time for sure, but his love revolution never really took off. There are literally millions upon millions, even billions of people who believe some of these misunderstandings of who Jesus is. People you work with, people in your family, people who go to church. Since they reduced Jesus to to be just a man, then what he said and what he did isn't really that important. Belief in who Jesus was is perhaps the most malleable belief that there is. Everybody seems to think that they can have their own view of Jesus. Jeremy Bowen, the presenter of a British Broadcasting Corporation documentary on Jesus, stated this. He said the important thing is not what he was or what he wasn't. The important thing is what people believe him to have been. So many today agree with that statement. It's not important who Jesus really is. It's only important about what I believe who Jesus is. Folks, Jeremy Bowen couldn't be more wrong. Who Jesus is and what he did is the foundation of our faith. Is our faith? Is life or death? So now John brings out the witnesses to start uh, uh, you know, proving the true identity of Jesus. If you look again at verse 6, it says, This is he who came by water and the blood, Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by water and the blood. The first witness is the water. Here signifies the baptism of Jesus. This, this false teacher, Serenthus, came out saying that the baptism of Jesus, you know, with this false understanding. So John here wants to correct that to his readers. See, Jesus' baptism was the public commencement of Jesus' ministry. John the Baptist said of Jesus' baptism in John chapter 1 that Jesus was baptized to reveal himself to Israel. 
It was the first step of the start of his ministry. Jesus' baptism was the divine commissioning of Jesus' ministry. Mark 1, 9-11 says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well, well pleased. See, both God the Holy Spirit was a divine testimony to the deity of Jesus descending on him like a dove. And God the Father was a divine witness giving testimony to the deity of Jesus, calling out in a voice from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus' baptism was unlike any other baptism ever. In the history of mankind, his baptism was a public declaration from the Godhead that this man, Jesus, was the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. But it wasn't just the water of his baptism that attests to the fact that Jesus is Christ. But the second witness is the blood. The blood of his crucifixion. You see, it's one thing to be publicly proclaimed to be divinely acknowledged to be the Christ, but it is something altogether greater more to actually do the saving. See, Jesus wasn't just proclaimed to be the Christ. He actually did the saving. At the crucifixion, God attests to the fact that Jesus was the Christ. At noon, the sky darkened. For three hours. At the death of Jesus, there was an earthquake. Many dead were resurrected. The veil guarding the entrance to the Holy of Holies in the temple was rent in two from the top to the bottom. You see, Jesus' death was like was unlike any other in the history of mankind. God visibly demonstrated for all to see that this man Jesus was the Christ the Messiah, the Savior. It is no wonder the centurion overseeing Christ's crucifixion proclaimed, truly, this man was the Son of God. You see, these two events, the water and the blood, the baptism and the death of Christ, are connected together because they both witness, they both testify that Jesus was the Christ. 1 John 4.10 says, And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You see, only God can atone sins. Only the Christ could bear our sins. Only the Son of God can be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. No mere man could ever do that. And we know by the baptism of Jesus and by the death of Jesus that he was no mere man. But that's only the first two witnesses. The third witness is the Holy Spirit. The end of verse 6 says, And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. See, the Spirit doesn't just tell the truth. The Spirit is the truth. So the testimony of someone who is the truth is very significant. Jesus says in John fifteen twenty six, But when the Helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. 
Jesus said in John 16, 13, and 14, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. Jesus said one of the most important responsibilities of the Spirit of truth is to bear witness about Him, to testify about the reality of who Jesus is, to glorify Him, to declare Him. One of the primary jobs of the Spirit is to testify about Jesus, to affirm who He is and what He has done. You see, the Spirit was involved at Jesus' conception. The Spirit was involved at Jesus' baptism. The Spirit carried him through his temptation. The Spirit ministered to Jesus and through Jesus throughout his ministry. The Spirit was involved in Jesus' death and resurrection. So closely connected are Jesus and the Spirit, as Matthew 12, 22-32 says, to attribute the miraculous works of Jesus to Satan was to blaspheme the Holy Spirit. They are so connected. The Spirit testifies. The Spirit proves. The Spirit confirms the deity of Jesus. From the very first moments of the incarnation to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, the Spirit of truth attests to the divinity of Jesus Christ. The Spirit testifies about Jesus in lots of ways. He testifies by the giving and the preserving of the Word of God for us. He testifies about Jesus by convicting people of their sin. He testifies about Jesus by giving new life, eternal life to those who believe. He testifies about Jesus by assuring believers of their salvation that they are children of God. He testifies about Jesus by guiding believers into all truth. He testifies about Jesus by gifting and equipping believers for service in the church, the body of Christ. One of the primary jobs of the Spirit is to testify about Jesus. And know how he does that in so many wonderful and powerful ways. Verse 8 says there are three witnesses, and they are in total agreement. The testimony of these three witnesses, the Spirit, the water, the blood, is in perfect harmony. And it convincingly demonstrates that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Throughout the Bible, from the law and Deuteronomy into the New Testament. The complete agreement of three witnesses made a convincing case in a courtroom. But the courtroom testimony is not yet fully complete. You see, verse 9 tells us that not just that the three would testify, but ultimately it is God the Father himself, his ultimate testimony. Verse 9 and 10 tell us this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. It was God the Father who sent his son from heaven to become the Savior. It was God the Father who with a loud voice on two occasions proclaimed, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. It was God the Father who had such a loving, intimate relationship with Jesus and Jesus in return with him. It was God the Father who literally shook the earth at the death of his son. It was God the Father who placed the sin of mankind on his son's shoulders. It was God the Father who accepted his son's sacrifice as payment 
for the sins of mankind. It was God the Father who proved to all people for all time that his son was a savior of the world when he in power rose Jesus from the dead. And it will be God the Father who demonstrably shows the world the power and the deity of his son when he sends his son to judge the world in the last days. See, verse 9 is very logical. In the court of law, we would receive the agreement of three witnesses as verifying the truth. Isn't that God's testimony, God's three witnesses, so much greater? If we're going to accept the veracity of man's testimony with the agreement of three witnesses, how much greater should we accept the truthfulness of God's three witnesses about his son Jesus? Folks, God has not left us wondering. God has not left us guessing. John's point is that God has provided more than enough corroborating evidence as to verify the truth that Jesus is his son, that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the one and only Savior. The problem's not the evidence. Right? We understand that. The problem's not the evidence. The problem is our hearts. The problem is, is that we refuse to accept the evidence. It's the hardness of our hearts that we refuse to accept the clear evidence of God. Oh, Jesus can't be divine. Jesus can't be the very Son of God. Jesus can't be who he said he is. Jesus can't have done what the Bible says he did. It just can't be true. Why? Because we don't want it to be true. Because if... If Jesus is who he said he is, if Jesus really came from God, if Jesus really lived a sinless life, died on the cross for our sins, if we really believe that, then it would change our lives. We would owe our allegiance to this man, Jesus. So instead, millions of people, friends, your neighbors, your family, Maybe even you. We just simply deny the truth. We deny the evidence so that we can do whatever we want. I will not accept Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I am the ruler, the decision maker of my own life. Instead of siding with the overwhelming evidence of the defense that Jesus is the Christ, we side with the persecution against Jesus. In our hearts we say, Jesus isn't who he claims to be because I don't want him to be the Christ. I don't want a Christ. But folks, denying the evidence doesn't eliminate the evidence. Denying the truth doesn't eliminate the truth. Verse 10 says, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. But whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. Folks, denying the truth doesn't negate the truth. And that brings us to our fourth point, the verdict. You see, the verdict is in, and it's a matter of life and death. But this verdict in this court case is totally unlike any ever before. See, the identity of Jesus was put on trial. The defense presented an overwhelming case. Jesus was proved beyond a shadow of a doubt to be the Christ, the one and only Son of God. It's a matter of life and death, yes, but not for the accused. Not for Jesus. 
You see, it all gets topsy-turvy here. In actuality, the jury are the ones that are being judged by the verdict. You see, the tables have all turned. The jury of mankind, the jury of you and me now stand before the judge. How we vote on who Jesus is means our life or death. Life, the Son, eternal life, heaven, or death, and separation from God, hell, all hangs in the balance, all hinging on our decision. God has given his testimony. God has laid forth the evidence. Look again at 1 John 5, 11 and 12. It says, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has a Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. That's about as clear of a verdict as has ever been given. If you have the Son, you have life. If you don't have the Son, you don't have life. Verse 13 makes it clear that that we can know. You can have assurance that you have eternal life. There's no middle ground. So answer to yourself right now. Do I have the Son? No middle ground. There's only a yes, I have the Son, or there's a no, I don't. If you have the Son, if He has given you eternal life, if He's given you abundant life, real life, purpose and meaning, rejoice. Rejoice in the knowledge that Jesus has saved you. Rejoice in our amazingly wonderful and beautiful and gracious God. Because you see, belief is a choice. Unbelief is a choice. Verse 11 says that God gives eternal life. This important point. It's a gift. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. See, you don't get Jesus by going to church. You don't get Jesus by joining some certain denomination. You don't get eternal life by being a good person. You don't get Jesus because you come from some really nice Christian family. There is only one way. There has always only been one way. It's a gift from God that he gives that we must receive. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. Our choice, your choice, is by grace through faith to receive the gift of the Son, to receive the gift of life, to receive the gift of eternal life. Well, I graduated from college in the spring of 1989, and I finished my first youth pastor job uh, ministry there in December of 89. I didn't start seminary until the fall of 1990, so for those first few months of 1990, I worked for my dad, and I worked doing the 1990 census. So they had just started a new law in Illinois on January 1st of 1990, requiring everyone to have car insurance. My dad was a State Farm insurance agent. So when I came to work for him, I was helping him sell car insurance. I would call all the people that he had insurance with, but didn't have car insurance with. And I tried to set up appointments for my dad to sell them car insurance. 
to learn an awful lot about the insurance business those few months. And it was a special time of memory with my dad, especially now that my dad has passed. Well, I would sit in the front office, and people would come in for appointments with my dad. And almost every time my dad would take the client down the hall to his office, he would stop and say, this is my son Brian. He's studying to be a minister. You know, I don't ever recall my dad ever directly telling me that he was happy or proud that I was studying to be a minister. But every single time he told someone else, it felt like he was telling me. Well, I had this standard reply. I would say to them, well, my dad and I are really in the same business. He sells insurance. I sell assurance. He sells life insurance. I offer eternal life insurance. He sells fire insurance. I offer the most ultimate fire assurance. And just like you, the people would laugh politely and then continue to walk down the hallway with my dad down to his office. Precious memories, but even better precious truth. See, today from God's word, Jesus is offering you life assurance, eternal life assurance, and the very best fire insurance you could ever have. He did all the work. He paid the price. Now through the Spirit, He is offering you a gift, the gift of eternal life, the gift of His Son. The verdict is in. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. I hope today that you would do serious work with God in your heart. And if you've never exchanged your life for Christ's life, if you have never taken hold of that gift in your life, that today could be the day for you to give Jesus your sin and to take from him his grace and forgiveness. Let's pray. Oh, Father, you are awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That you would be so gracious and kind. That you would be so loving and forgiving. That you would be so proactive to provide for us life, eternal life, and hope and purpose through your Son, Jesus Christ, through his death, through his resurrection. Lord, now in these few moments, we pray. We pray that you would guide and direct our thoughts and we would do what your Spirit is challenging us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.